Good morning. Um, no one told me that the terrible twos start before they're two. Um, and so it's been a sweaty Sunday morning, <laughs> but it's been good. Uh, Drew's also going to come and uh, he's going to gla- give me my glasses uh, that uh, Alice took out the crash. So <laughs> bear with me. I'm a bit of a fluster. But uh, before I start, I just want to say thank you to Tom um, for inviting me this morning to speak. Um, it's always a challenge to do so. Um, but I hope we have a blessed morning as we get together and we look at the scriptures together. And here's Drew. Um, if you could turn, please, to um, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to get you to multitask as well while you're turning there. If you could also put your thumb in John chapter 14. And just while you're turning, I'll just give you a bit of context of, of how I got to these two, two scriptures. Um, Portable Game Clock, he says, and this year, uh, we always have a theme. And our theme this year, we decided to do the armor of God. And, you know, Ephesians talks through the armor that God graciously gives to his people to wear so that we can stand firm and in the might of the Lord and to protect us against the schemes of the evil one. Um, and Paul is chained and in prison as he writes to the church in Ephesus. He's been supervised by a soldier and the Lord speaks to Paul, even in the worst circumstances that he might find himself in, to encourage the, the Ephesians and better yet, to encourage us here this morning. Paul likens that armor that God gives us like, a, like an armor soldier would typically wear, but our battle is a wee bit different. It's not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And out out of the six pieces of equipment um, that Paul lists and and that the Lord graciously gives us, I really want to home in on the first piece of armor that Paul instructs us to put on in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, and it's the belt of truth. You know, the belt the soldiers wore back in those days was a central part of their armor. In fact, even a soldier's rest day, he wouldn't have taken it off. And so a soldier was marked and identified by his belt. And besides being able to identify a soldier through his belt, when fastened properly, it provided support for the rest of his armor um, that he would wear. It prevented it from snagging or, or tripping up over his long tunic, and it allowed him to store his sword. So what is the belt, belt of truth that Paul tells us to put in? Um, John chapter four, 14 answers that question. Jesus declares that he is the way and the truth and the life. And so we are to fasten the truth of Jesus and his words on like a belt. And as we progress through the sermon, ask yourself, do you live your life in such a way that you've been marked or easily identified because of the truth? Do you know his way, his truth and his life? Or is the truth something that you wear only on a Sunday when you're on duty? Why should you follow your own way, your own truth and your own life through the rest of the week? It's my prayer for you this morning that you fasten on the belt of truth, holding it close to your body so that you can prevail against the evil one. Before we do anything, let's pray. Father in heaven, just thank you again for another Sunday morning service. Lord, thank you that we're, we're gathered here in one accord, and that's to worship you and your son. Lord, thank you for this belt of truth that we can put on. We can hold it close to our body. 
And Lord, just thank you, you graciously give it, give it to us so you, that we can protect ourselves against the scheme of the devil. And Lord, as we open up the scriptures together, let that, that us be a blessed morning um, as we study this passage together. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is the whole armor of God. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And then just th flick over then to John chapter 14. We'll just couple these two passages together. And it's John chapter 14, verse 6. And this, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me, come, no one comes to the Father except through me. And at the start of the book of John, he tells us that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ who's now declaring that we just read that he is God and he is the truth. This is what we are to fasten on this morning. The word who is Jesus and his written word, the Bible. Later in the book of John, um, you'll read that Jesus prays to his father. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And through this simple prayer, Jesus is declaring that God's word is truth and God's word equals truth. And it's absolutely vital that we are rooted in and fastened to his word. Uh, the psalmist says in 119 um, that we're to store up his word in our hearts that we might not sin against them. So why should we store up his truth in our hearts and, and our minds? Look again at verse 11 um, of Ephesians chapter 6. That you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. And the devil wants you to sin against the Lord. You know, if we cast our minds back to the book of Genesis and how the devil was successful in tempting Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit, what was his strategy? His strategy was to attack the word of God, to challenge God's authority and to pervert it with half-truths and lies. He tested whether or not Eve had really stored up God's word in her heart. And if she didn't, he knew he could deceive her into sinning against God, bringing death and separation from God. You know, sin was brought into this world through one simple question. Did God really say? And the devil's strategy hasn't changed much over the years. If you look at his, his attempt at tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he tried the same thing. But this time, of course, he was speaking to the living word, who knew God's word because he was and is God's word. And, if, and how did Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responded with the word of God. He recited scripture against the devil's temptation and once the devil seen that the word of God was deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, he fled and the devil lost. His word is also the offensive weapon that we are to use in the battle against the evil one in Ephesians chapter 6. That's why it's so important that you have the belt of truth fastened on this morning. So you can draw on the sword of truth to cut through the lies of the evil one. And my dad growing up was my Sunday school, Sunday school teacher um, and he made sure that I knew that the devil was no one to entertain. He's looking at who he can devour. And he taught me one of my favorite verses in the word of God. And it's found in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 
It says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walk of the bout, seeking him he may devour. And it's so important that we're on our guard, alert, and rooted in his word, so that we can know and we can reject anything that is contrary to it. Because anything that is contrary to it, well, it's the whispers of did God really say that the devil has been spewing since the beginning. So as we work through this message this morning, let us work through what Jesus says in John chapter 14 by looking at his way first. And just while we look at his way, there's, there's a quick Proverbs that is very profound and it, it literally just describes this whole part of the sermon. Um, it's Proverbs 14, 12, 13, and you probably all know it very well. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And if, if we think back again to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, um, where, a, where a choice that led to a particular way was made, which Proverbs is talking about. Eden, Adam and Eve chose their way. Their choice removed God from the equation. God had created Adam and Eve to give them a brain to think for themselves but they were never made to think by themselves. You know, it seemed right to them, and that was a problem because it wasn't right at all. Their way was the beginning of the end for them. And God couldn't have been any clearer when he warned them of the dire consequences that would happen if they disobeyed his word, that they would surely die. And he was also very clear that if they obeyed his word, their, their reward would be the fruit of the tree of life. Adam and Eve's way caused a disconnect, a curse, an eternal separation called death from a good God. Romans 5 tells us that sin spread to all through Adam and Eve. And we can see the effect of sin um, and that curse because, well, we all die. You know, have you looked in the mirror this morning and maybe seen a new wee wrinkle on your face? Maybe noticed a new gray hair? Or even worse, maybe your hair has fallen out. Um, and is it maybe a little bit harder to get out of the chair in the morning? You know, that is the evidence of the curse um, that has been brought upon us by Adam and Eve. You know, we all die. We all wear it on our faces and in our bodies. And as you read through the Bible, that's the common theme. Man choosing his sin over God time and time again, his way over God's way. But God had graciously and has graciously put eternity into man's heart. I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, death, for me, is a scary thing. And sin has blinded man from knowing the truth. But a man's mortality, mortality he knows he's going to die, has created so many um, ways that seem right to obtain acceptance from God when he dies. A man, I, I had a quick Google, Google at this um, over the past week. Man has created over 4,000 religions. Um, to try and bridge the gap between him and God, and they all have one thing in common. They try to bridge the gap through good works, and hopefully their good works outweigh their bad ones, um, so that the scales of justice falls positive, positively for them when they stand before God. You know, if you look closely enough, you can see Satan's influence in these religions. You take the Book of Mormon, for example. It changes the text from that which is the Bible, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. But if you look at the Book of Mormon, it says, for by grace you have been saved after all that you can do. And doesn't that sort of sound similar to the schemes of the devil? The change of God's word and authority, just like we've seen him do in the garden, 
with Adam and Eve. And none of the 4,000 man-made religions even guarantees a place in heaven. In fact, the Bible tells us that these ways may seem right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And I've been listening to Ray Comfort quite a lot recently um, on my journeys to and from work. I've an hour and 10 minutes to get to work. So I like to fill it by, by listening to him. He's, he's very good. If you haven't listened to him, looking up on YouTube. R Rhonda, I think you shared it into the Bible's WhatsApp group a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's got just a fantastic way um, about presenting and sharing the gospel uh, with everyday people. And he starts the conversation with a question. Do you think that you're a good person? And ask yourself that this morning. Do you think that you're a good person? And what becomes very familiar um, theme in his conversations and his videos with everyday people is that they think by their own standards that they are a good person. Their way seems right, and so when they die, they, die, they expect that God will accept them. <coughs> and of course, they may be good in the subjective standards of their friends and neighbors, and even of this world. But Ray uses a lot of analogies to draw them in um, and in his conversations to show them that by God's way and God's standard, they're in fact not good. That we have all sinned against God and have all fallen short of his glory. Um, one of the analogies I, I find really useful this morning um, is that he uses um, a hospital. He tells the story of a patient that goes to the hospital for a routine scan. And that they believe that they're well and it's just a routine checkup. However, the doctor has reviewed the scans, and it's the opposite. They're dying, and they're in need of a cure. You know, would it be wise for the doctor to offer the patient who has no reason to believe that they are ill and dying the cure? Or would it be wiser for the doctor to show them the x-rays? Well, there's no point in giving them the cure because they don't think they need it. You would show them the x-rays, prove that they are sick and in need of medicine, and then they'll take the cure. Ray's x-rays are the Ten Commandments. He explains, he explains to them that this is God's moral law, God's standard for mankind. This is what God expects. And he goes through the Ten Commandments by asking them if they have ever told a lie. I'm not going to do it this morning because everyone will have their hand up. <laughs> um, and if you don't have your hand up, you're lying. So <laughs> but they'll answer yes. Um, I've told a lie. Then he'll ask them, well, what do you call someone who tells lies? And they'll respond with, well, you'll call them a liar. Then he'll ask them, what does that make you? And they'll only be able to answer, well, it makes me a liar. And I'm sure as we examine that same commandment, we come to the same conclusion. Ray continues on like this with a few other commandments. And by the end of it, they have confessed that they are a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer at heart. They get asked the same question with what Ray started with at the very beginning. Are you a good person? And the response is now the opposite. They now realize that before a holy God who created this world, that they are guilty of breaking his law, just like you and me this morning. Their, their way will not gain acceptance from God and will eventually lead them to a godless eternity in hell. But Genesis tells us that after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, that their eyes were opened that they were aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. So they tried to cover up their shame with garments made of fig trees and they hid from God. And that's a picture of the end of man's way on the day of judgment. He'll try to cover up the shame of his sinful actions through the garments um, 
of the fig trees of good works. But God's way is rich in mercy. And even when Adam and Eve were at their worst, he provided clues for Adam and Eve through the sacrificial killing of an animal. I remember Joe Reese was here maybe, I don't know, six, six, seven years ago now. And Joe Reese spoke on this exact same thing. And he believed that the animal coats were probably still dripping with blood as they covered, covered Adam and Eve's sin. You know, a real, the real consequence of sinning against God, something that was innocent had to die in man's place. In other words, an atonement or a cost had to be made to pay for the fine. And this, of course, was a foretelling of how God would pave the way to deal with sin and death once and for all. He would send his only begotten son in the form of a man called Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. Jesus would live for 33 years or so and subject it to the same trials and tribulations that we're subjected to. John the Baptist would say, look, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, foretelling the sacrifice Jesus Christ would make on the cross for us. He had performed many miracles, healing the sick, restoring the vision for the blind, and he would be the only person to fulfill God's holy law, to fulfill the Ten Commandments, and never sin once. His mission was to save sinners. He would declare himself as the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to him except through the Father. And yet, man rejected him as the Christ, and again, chose their sin over him. Instead of crowning him, truth himself was crucified on a tree. But this is with the will of his father who sent him. This is how God would bridge the gap between him and man. His blood would be the price for sinners to pay for the fine of their sin. And he would rise again victorious on the third day, defeating death once and for all so that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, that is, what Je- that, that is what sets Jesus Christ apart from those other 4,000 religions. There's no reliance on good works, no reliance on deaf, dumb, and dead gods, only faith in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ that cleanses from our sins, who raised the life after three days and now sits at the right hand of the Father. God will accept us through the gift of faith, that we have in his son. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in none other. Make sure that you fasten that on. But now let's look at the truth after we've just finished with the way because our darkened world has lost the meaning of truth. It has exchanged the truth for a lie. And if you ask a hundred strangers on the street, what is the truth? You would probably get a hundred different answers. The world and the prince of this world, the devil, has tried to make truth subjective. And you'll hear a lot of people encourage others to speak their truth. Or when challenged with the truth of Jesus Christ, they'll reply with, well, that's not my truth. You see, my generation especially has created a God of self. But that's not the truth. Truth can't be subjective. Truth is fixed throughout time. It's constant. It never changes. That's why Jesus' declaration in John chapter 14 of the truth is so profound. He's declaring that he is God, the author, the source, the determiner, the governor, the ultimate standard, and the final judge of truth. You remove God as being the truth, then you have no definition of right or wrong. No purpose, no identity, no beauty, no structure. Everything is chaos. A wee bit like we're seeing today. 
In this part of the sermon, I really want to leave you some truths that I've found particularly helpful um, in my Christian walk and that have taken deep root within my heart. These are truths that we should recall on every single day because the evil one attacks every single day. And the first one is the truth of who Jesus is. You know, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus declares himself to be the great I am, um, referring back to the great I am in Exodus. And the great I am in Exodus led his people out of bondage from the Egyptians to the promised land. And this title um, in itself proclaims that Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. You know, and and through those three um, statements, we can be encouraged this morning with the truth that Jesus knows every facet of our lives. He's not a distant God who rules with an iron rod, but he personally knows his people. He knows our mess, and yet he simply loves us because he loves us, even despite us. He is sovereign over all things. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. He has placed us in this timeline of eternity for his purpose. There will be things that happen in our lives that take us by surprise, but he tells us that all things work together for our good and that nothing can take him by surprise. He's promised that he'll be with us wherever he goes because he's all present. You know, you can look back at your life and you can see his guiding hand. He gives us strength for today and he has been in our tomorrow. There's nothing more secure for the Christian in knowing that we have a God who cares deeply about his people. The same I am will lead us out of bondage from sin and into eternal life at last. And then the second part is I want to leave with you is the truth of Jesus' mission. And, and that truth was to give glory to his Father and to do his Father's will. And the will of the Father for the Son was to kill sin and overcome death. And the Gospel Coalition surmises it in six C's. Try and make it easy to under, to, you know, to remember. The first one is he condemns sin. Jesus tells sin in no uncertain terms, you're going to die. Romans 8, 3 says he condemns sin in the flesh. And the second C, he carries sin. He is a true and better sacrifice. He took our place. This time he does it once and for all. The Bible says he himself bore our sins in the body on the tree. And the third and the fourth is he cancels it and he crucifies sin. Jesus has paid the fine in full. Colossians 2, 13, 14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Number four, he cast sin away. Micah 7 talks about our sin being cast into the depths of the sea. And the final one is, which I love, He chooses to forget it. He doesn't hold us to it, but instead chooses to forget it. He says in Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is how Jesus forgives sin. He condemns it, he carries it, he cancels it, he kills it, he casts it, and he clean forgets it, but only if we'll confess it. If you've put your faith in Christ, hold fast to the truth who is Jesus and what he has accomplished for you on the cross. And then moving on then to the final part of the message this morning, I want to look at the life um, that John describes. And man's life leads to death. You know, I work all week to get paid um, what I'm owed at the end of the month. God tells us that in the same way as sinners, our work is in sin. 
and we too will get paid what we are owed at the end of life's work. We will, be, we will be paid in death and separation from God eternally in a place called hell. Uh, you know, his word tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And thank God there is a but in that verse. Because God's death leads to life. It's not work. You cannot earn it. Rather, it's a free gift. It's so interesting as how he offers the free gift of life to those who believe. You see, in Genesis, it all started with a tree. In the New Testament, it was accomplished on a tree. And in Revelation, it all ends with a tree. If you've just got time, if you can flick over to Revelation chapter 22. We'll just read the first, first five verses, one to five. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 to 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In Genesis before the fall, God planted the tree of life in the garden. And it was the central part of the garden. It was in the middle of the garden. Um, it sustained the physical life of humanity and creation. It represented creation's dependence on God, the life giver. But after the fall, man was banished from the garden and from the tree of life. And it's really interesting because if fallen man, if God had allowed fallen man to eat from the tree of life, then this would have doomed man to an eternity lost in sin, separated from God forever. And yet, even when man was at his worst, God had still extended the richness of mercy by guarding the tree of life with cherubim. Someone said that God knew for man to live eternally in a sinful state would mean endless agony for him, with no hope of the relief that comes with death. But God's plan was to not withhold the tree of life from man forever. Instead, he would send his son to die on a tree so that we would have access to the tree of life once again and forever. Spurgeon said, we believe our Lord Jesus Christ to be none other than that tree of life whose leaves are for the nations. It is most certainly true that our Lord Jesus Christ is life from the dead and life to his own living people. He is all and all to them and by him and him alone must their spiritual life be maintained. The tree of life represents a promise that God himself sustains our life through the death and resurrection of his son, both now and for the future to come. In Revelation, through faith in Christ, man regains access to the garden that he was supposed to be in and to the tree of life. The curse of sin and death is now banished, along with the sorrow and sadness of this broken world. The leaves of the tree will be for our healing. Life is hard. And we all 
grown for a day that will be made right, that there will be no longer any sickness, any panging, any weeping, any suffering, any pain, any stress, any sadness, any tears, or any goodbyes. As we look forward to the new Eden, fasten on this truth of life we have been given in Christ and of the joy of what is to come, where we will never tire of worshipping the one who gained our entry forever and ever. Hopefully this morning you've been encouraged and challenged to fasten on this belt of truth and in doing so you can stand firm in the might of the Lord and against the schemes of the evil one. Let's be rooted in Jesus' word that he is the way, the truth and the life and that our lives should be marked by his way, his truth and his life. Amen.